Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas and that range is called the Overton Window and on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. There is an election coming up as we're recording this episode, and who gets elected in that election matters to what policies within the window get enacted next year. And what people run on can form the agenda for the winning side. So we're going to talk to uh, with Adrian Hemond today about how candidates win your vote and what that matters to next year's policy debate. Adrian is the CEO and chairman of Grassroots Midwest, a bipartisan political consulting firm. Adrian, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. Let's cover some of the basics. How do you get people to vote for you? Well, you know, the the best way to get somebody to vote for you is to shake their hand and ask them. Um, unfortunately, in most elections, that's not possible. Um, if you're running for school board, I highly encourage you, go shake every voter in the school district's hand um, and ask for their vote. That's going to be the most effective thing. But when you start running for higher level offices, you know, you get up to the state Senate or God forbid the Congress or a statewide office, you can't shake every voter's hand and ask for their vote. And so you're going to have to rely on some other sort of paid communication tactics to get your name and your message in front of voters. Um, so how do you do that? Like what, 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 how do you figure out how to, uh, to communicate to voters in a way that, is, that you're going to convince them to vote for you? Well, so the first thing is that you have to have money. Uh, I mean, I mentioned paid communication tactics, and you do have to have some money um, in order to be able to purchase those things that you can put in front of voters. So when we work on a campaign, we think about this like a hierarchy of touches. You can think of it like the old Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That in-person face-to-face conversation is at the very top of the pyramid. Um, but you know, targeted conversations one-on-one with a voter are the next best thing. So that might be on the telephone. Um, you, know, you can call people or you can have, you know, volunteers or paid staff call people and have a conversation with them. Um, and, uh, you know, failing that, then you might do some of uh, the more impersonal targeted communication techniques, like a piece of direct mail or like a geo-targeted digital ad that's going to go to that voter's household. So some of those, uh, they're not as personal um, in terms of the touches, but they're still targeted at specific voters so that you can talk to them about the things that are important to them. And that sets up a very um, important issue for a candidate or a group that's trying to influence an election. You need to talk to voters about things that they care about. I think there's a misconception that elections are about convincing people on issues. They are not. Elections are how we keep score on issues. And um, so you need to know what do these voters think? And there are all sorts of shorthands that we can use for that. Partisan affiliation is normally at the top of the list, right? If somebody's a Republican, they're far more likely to be a pro-life voter. If they're a Democrat, they're far more likely to be a pro-choice voter. But that's not a 100% lead pipe lock. That's a heuristic that you're using to sort voters so that you know what to talk to them about. So those are some of the paid communication techniques that you can use. But you need to make sure that they're going to the right voters, right? Sending a um, uh, a mail piece with a sort of pro-life position on it to a pro-choice voter could be actively harmful for your efforts, especially if there's a different issue that you could talk to them about that might secure their vote. So you make a really good point, which is you got to find out what voters care about. And 
Of course, we're in an election season. I'm getting tons of campaign flyers, that direct mail in my household. And you can clearly tell that the goal is trying to figure out what I want to hear and then tell tell me what I want to hear. Yeah. Uh, and so that this year, though, because inflation is such a big issue, you see all these people blaming people who aren't even in office for inflation uh, or, or blaming state level candidates about national inflation. Um, so why do candidates not people for these things when they have so little ability to influence them? Well, because they know that people are paying attention and they know that people care about those issues, even though they don't necessarily know what influence a particular elected official could have on them. You know, I, I hear pretty frequently from people who have elected positions in local government that have folks calling up to bang on them about the abortion issue on either side. Mm-hmm. And I, I have news for folks. Your city councilman or the township supervisor has absolutely no influence whatsoever over abortion policy. Um, You can call and ask until you're blue in the face. They can't help you. (laughs) That being said, in terms of a campaign communication tactic, um, you know, if you can paint someone as being on one side or another of an issue that you know that voter cares about, that may move the needle there. So to a certain extent, it's taking advantage of the ignorance of voters. All right. So you said that uh, the best way to communicate with a person, meet them in person, shake their hand, ask, ask them to vote for. Why is that so effective? Well, because I mean, I, I, because ultimately politics is um, human interactions. Right. Um, and it's a lot of human interactions all at once when you get to running for president or running for Congress. But ultimately, it is about human interactions and It's a popularity contest. I know that that seems sort of crass to speak about, you know, electing the people who will steer the ship of state as a popularity contest. But that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's that's like an interesting thing. Like if you if you meet most lawmakers, despite the reputation that politicians have as being, you know, somewhat crass, like they're honestly nice people. And when you meet them in person, they really want you to like them. I mean, this, uh, and that's the simplest way to, to kind of establish some trust is meet them in, in person, say hi, ask, ask, and be direct, ask, ask for their vote. I mean, that I can't imagine anything that would be more effective than that. That's absolutely right. And, you know, understanding um, a person on a personal level, even if it's a sort of surface understanding, that overcomes a lot of hurdles for a candidate. Um, or, or for an elected official in general, like I sort of came up in democratic politics. I have a lot of very dear friends that I've made in politics who are very conservative Republicans that I disagree with about a whole lot of issues. But I've written some of those people checks before. I voted for some of those people before because I know that they're good people that are trying to do the right thing for the state. I don't think that they have any views that are completely beyond the pale. And so I'm willing to I'm willing to plunk for somebody that I know I disagree with because I agree with the approach. And I think that they're a moral, ethical person who will do their best to do a good job. So having that personal connection can get you past a lot in terms of issue disagreement. Yeah, and it's just a matter of like uh, uh, who the like, the charm of le- that of certain legislators. Like, I'm an advocate. I go into committee and I argue for controversial legislation, and I get a lot of uh, uh, pushback from uh, from people. And sometimes, just afterwards, people will you know harass me in campaign, but they'll come up, they'll uh, they'll be friendly, they'll shake my hand, they're like, "Wow, this guy has a lot of charisma," uh, for having yelled at me for a while, and I still kind of like him. 
<laughs> yeah, it really goes a long way. And I mean, you know, the personal charisma can go a long way. Also, just like being decent to people can go a long, long way. Um, you know, being being honest can go a long, long way. I, um, I I like to use the example fairly frequently of former state representative Martin Hauerlach. Like mm-hmm. Martin wasn't necessarily winning any popularity contests in terms of, you know, if you put him in a room with a bunch of un- other elected officials, yeah. he'd be the first to admit that many of them were more charming. But Martin was pretty beloved around this town because everybody knew that he was an honest broker. He was very transparent about where he stood on issues. And you knew that you were going to get a fair shake from the guy, even if you were going to walk away disagreeing with him and maybe losing on your issue. You didn't feel like he was being unethical or unfair. He was a straight shooter and people respected him for that. Well, let's go back to some of the tools that uh, that uh, candidates have at their disposal to uh, get their message out and, and to win win over voters. I mentioned that you had geo-targeted digital ads, which I assume is just like I people in a in a geography they're in my district. I need to try and target them. I've got a message that I think is broadly appealing, but how do you figure out who is likely to vote for you? Well, so this is all a matter of public record, right? Um, so you can purchase the qualified voter file from the state of Michigan or, you know, whatever state you're in, you can uh, purchase. By the way, the qualified voter file is every person who votes has, gets a record. And uh, and doesn't that go back a couple of years, too? Or, or how does that Oh, yeah. Happen? Yeah, it goes back. It goes back several years. Um, and not just um, the fact that you are registered to vote um, is logged there, but whether or not you voted. Um, And so there's very, very important information there, starting with which elections you voted in. Do you vote in the partisan primaries of one party or the other party? Or do you vote in partisan primaries on either side, depending on the year? That gives me important information about who you are as a voter. Um, And there's all sorts of additional information that you can go out and purchase about voters as well. Um, That's frankly kind of creepy. Um, And it allows you to to be very, very narrowly targeted in how you're going to talk to different types of voters. And you can serve the ads directly to their address. Um, And once you do so, you can follow their mobile devices around and serve them ads when they're not in the home or they're not even in the particular political jurisdiction that you care about. Um, And that's an incredibly, incredibly powerful tool. A good example of that is um, think about trying to pass a police millage right? Um, A bond or a millage to support local law enforcement. So for Democrats, you know, you might lean into the services piece and Democrats tend to be a little friendlier to tax increases. So you'd have one message for them. With more conservative Republican voters in that same jurisdiction, you'd have a different message, right? Um, That might be, you know, more of a sort of thin blue line, back the blue message that you know that a Republican voter is more likely to be receptive to. And so I can pick and choose those individual voters and who's going to see what message based on, again, what I think you want to hear based on the data. So to that extent, um, let's say you're a candidate for a legislative office. Do you have your, you know, uh, are you just targeting, you know, likely Democrat, likely Republican uh, with different messages? Or or do you even go more granular than that? Oh, far more granular than that. Um, And you do it for fundraising. You do it for targeting people with messages about their voting. So you start with that partisan data. 
But there is all sorts of data that um, you and I and everyone else essentially gives away to the big tech conglomerates, right? Um, data about the things that you buy, the sports that you watch. Um, you know, there's, there's all of that sort of data. There are also additional public records um, that companies go and mine so they can turn around and sell that data to folks like me. So, for instance... Um, on my computer screen right now, I've got a program pulled up that'll tell me um, when you bought your house, how much you paid for it, what sports you watch on the weekend, what sort of things do you buy online, do you own a gun, do you have a concealed carry permit, what sort of hunting licenses do you have, are you a member of a labor union? Um, and so I can use all some of, of those that. are public records and some of those are just things that marketing companies have. So like uh, uh, right. gun registration, like the government knows that you can FOIA some of that information, I, I think. Uh, yes. But other things that are like this is private information that just by um, using your tech services, someone knows they put in a database out there to help people like like. Uh, like campaign consultants, try and get their uh, their people in front of the voters that they need the way that they want to. Yeah, and campaign consultants, we're not actually terribly innovative people. What we do <laughs> is that we steal the best techniques from marketing and advertising, and we deploy them in politics. And that's what's happened here, right? The first place that I encountered digital geo-targeting was a friend of mine who worked in marketing um, who pulled up a display for a campaign he was working on for one of the big three auto companies. This is like 12 years ago, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that technology and that data has uh, migrated into politics now um, because you know people like me who worked in politics started cross-pollinating with the marketers and the advertisers mm -hmm. that work in, you know, durable goods and sectors like that. Yeah. I, I kind of like that because it's like, okay, we've got a, a tech platform. The first people who are going to figure out how it works are the people who are trying to make money off the things you're selling. And then the uh, second one is like, eh, we could probably use this for politics and for other things too. And I assume that uh, me as a policy advocate in an organization, we're, we're usually the last in line on that. Uh, <laughs> that actually tends to be the case um, is that the, um, you know, it's, it starts in the business world um, with marketing and then it migrates to winning elections and then policy advocates figure out, wait a minute, I can use this to move the needle on my issues too. Um, and and we're, we do a lot of that work. In fact, um, you know, once the election's over, there are all sorts of folks that want to speak to these folks who've won elections. Um, and so it's sort of the campaign in reverse. Instead of um, political candidates communicating with the voters, it's associations of the voters communicating with those candidates. Hey, you won. Now do my stuff. Mm -hmm. How are these messages that you're sending uh, through a variety of means tested for effectiveness? Or are, are these candidates simply relying on their gut to try and figure it out? It, uh, honestly, the answer to that question depends to a certain extent on what your resource base looks like. There's a lot of publicly available research about how different types of people perceive different information, um, what their habits are, um, but that's all sort of broad and generalized across a country, a state, something like that. If you want real granular information about what different types of voters think in a district, you need to do some custom research for that piece of um, uh, political geography for a state or a congressional district. That can mean public opinion polling, um, if you've got the money, it can mean focus groups. Um, so you get, you know, a group of voters that you want to be able to talk to people who share certain characteristics and get them in a room and subject them to a battery of sort of treatments about how you talk about different messages and see how they react to it. Um, uh, so there are a few different options. How much like does that. a focus group cost? 
Um, a good one is probably going to cost you at least $30,000 and probably more, um, especially if you want it to be of any size and length, um, because there are very sort of specific conditions that you want to have people in when you're doing a focus group to make sure that they're being influenced by the message treatment and not by their environment or something mm. like that. Um, so it can be a pretty expensive pop, uh, proposition. Same thing with polling now, um, especially in light of some very high profile polling misses in 2016. Um, pollsters have gotten a lot more careful and a lot more rigorous in how they do this polling. And that costs money. Mm-hmm. All right. Sorry. Uh, uh, please continue with what focus groups cause. It was one of those uh, things that I'm like, oh, that's, I'm curious about how much uh, some of these things cost. But what do, you, what do focus groups get you if, if, if you do them right? So they get you a lot richer sort of interaction with how people perceive and react to different types of messages, different ways of talking about an issue. When you do a public opinion poll, you're asking one or two, or if it's a long poll, maybe three questions around an issue. And so you can frame it a little bit differently, but you're not getting um, a really organic sort of interaction. You're not getting that sort of really rich information about how people react to this and respond to it. Um, so it's a, um, but you're also talking to far fewer people than you are with a public opinion poll. So it's really hard to do a focus group that's representative of a big piece of political geography sort of writ large, you know, mm-hmm. to do a focus group that's representative of our two peninsulas and very, very diverse electorate would be difficult and expensive and would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But, you know, doing a decent focus group to fo- really narrow in on a particular demographic group or a particular, you know, type of voter who cares about Sorry, one issue or the other, for a that's going to run you at least $30,000. Okay, gotcha. Um, all right. So I've got to ask, because uh, I think a lot of people are curious about this. What do yard signs do? <laughs> they cost a lot of money <laughs> is what they do. Um, and it's not just the signs. So I hate yard signs like most quality political consultants. Um, we won't actually do them um, for the clients that we work with. Uh, there are a couple of vendors that I just send people to. I refuse to make money off them because I think <laughs> it's such a waste. Um, what they're good for is visibility. Um, I think most people find them incredibly annoying when, especially when they're stuck in rights of way and are obstructing, you know, um, safely making turns in intersections and things like that. They do get you a little bit of sort of brand awareness, right? Um, which can be valuable, especially in races where nobody knows the candidates, right? Um, like judicial elections, you probably need to do some yard science because nobody knows who you are. Um, let's just be blunt about that. Like, but you get that far down the ballot for a nonpartisan election. Nobody knows who these candidates are. So if you can get voters to recognize your name, that's a win. Um, but for most campaigns, especially for, um, you know, a- any sort of partisan office, I tell people invest in almost anything else. <laughs> Especially since they're cheap digital ads right now where you can get in front of the voters that you want. That's right. That's right. And um, if you are put in a position where you have to do yard signs, you know, your supporters are demanding them or you're, you know, a nonpartisan judicial candidate who just needs to buy some name ID, um, find a couple of volunteers to assemble them and then find a political candidate who ran for office and lost and buy their sign wires. Sign wires are the expensive part. The printing is not. (laughs) Um, It's the metal. Um, and we've all seen what inflation <laughs> has done to metal prices in construction. The same thing applies to yard signs. 
That's crazy. I hadn't even thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense. Yep. Uh, as a policy advocate, I want candidates to run on specific calls to action because it can create a clear mandate to do or not do something, depending on whether they win or lose. Yet it seems that most candidates shy away from that. Why is that? Well, there's a fair amount of triangulation that goes on, right, um, when you're running for office, because you need to get a majority of voters. And for basically every issue, there's there's very it's very rare that there's an issue that's the number one issue for a majority mm-hmm. of voters, right? Even if people agree on an issue, people disagree about how salient that issue is, how important that is to their lives, to the things that they care about. And so for folks who are running for elective office, they need to be able to uh, communicate with multiple groups of people, with people who prioritize issues differently. And so it's very, very hard to have a candidate that's focused in on just one or two issues because they're trying to cobble together that majority of voters however they can. Mm -hmm. And so I guess when you're looking out at what people are running on right now, what do you see are some of the themes? Well, um, uh, speaking as someone who's worked in Democratic politics for a long time, um, Democrats are running on abortion and Republicans are running on basically every other issue. Um, And the reason for that is if you look at um, the public opinion polling over the last year, Democrats win on the abortion issue and Republicans win on every other issue in the current issue environment. And so Republicans are talking about inflation. They're talking about crime. um, You know, they're talking about education and kids being locked out of school. They have a sort of wide panoply of issues that they can talk about right now that the voters seem to favor them on. Really, the only thing that Democrats are winning on right now is on the abortion issue and on uh, a sort of nebulous characteristic I would call candidate quality. Um, That's really what the Democrats have going for them right now. And so in the issue environment, um, the on the Republican side, it's a little noisier. And that's an artifact of the fact that they have multiple issues to choose from to run on right now. But Democrats don't have that. And that's partly because it's President Biden's first midterm and President's parties typically do very badly in midterms, especially this one, because he's quite unpopular. Mm. Uh, So uh, to that, I think a lot of pro-life people might be surprised to hear that Democrats win on abortion. Mm -hmm. So make your case for why, to them, like why they think that this is an issue where the, the public's with them. So I have long operated under the theory that the party that wins election is the one that can act less weird. Right. Um, going into an election. And I think that's the the both parties are weird on the abortion issue. But I think that Democrats have been able to capture the less weird space in terms of where a majority of the voters are. I was just having a conversation with a reporter earlier today where I said, you know, Republicans had staked out a position when the Dobbs opinion leaked before it was even released. Um, that was essentially and the Dobbs opinion is the one that overturned or that made it a subject of state regulation rather than federally protected right for abortion up to a certain up to certain limits. That's right. Yeah. Um, and when the Dobbs uh, decision leaked, if Republicans had staked out a position that was literally just pick a number, the number doesn't matter. Could be 15 weeks, could be 20 weeks, could be 17. Doesn't, the number doesn't matter. Pick a number and add a broad list of exceptions for rape and incest, um, you know, for the life of the woman, et cetera. That's like a 65% position with the American public. Republicans didn't do that. 
Um, and especially in Michigan, they have a nominee who's on video, you know, having a no exceptions um, position. That's not a majority position with voters. That's not to say that voters favor no restrictions on abortion. That's clearly not the case. Right. But Republicans uh, or excuse me, Democrats have successfully framed themselves to the electorate as having the less weird position um, on that issue. And it's paying some political dividends for them, um, partly because Republicans just sort of fumbled on that issue when they had an opportunity to seize the broad centrist middle on it. And and right now you're just talking about what is popular uh, about this issue, where where the people you as a political consultant see the uh, where people are on this issue, which is just like both sides are are probably in a minority. They're a strong vocal minority. The, the strong vocal minority are the people that are they're the loudest. They're they're trying to be consistent with their views. And then that majority opinion is is neither one of those uh, one of those places. And as you're running for office, you're trying to get to that majority opinion. Yeah. If you're running in a politically competitive district, then yeah, that's absolutely the case. And I think, you know, this is, this is probably the most hot button issue in America and it has been for a long time. It's the one issue that my firm won't work on, on either side. Um, for exactly that reason, um, we'll work on literally anything else if the check clears, but we won't work either side of that issue. Um, you know, like it's, it, I come from a big Roman Catholic family, right? A lot of Roman Catholics have very ambivalent attitudes around abortion, right? In general, we do not like abortion. Most Roman Catholics also don't want to completely ban abortion with no exceptions. And I think that that sort of points to where the electorate's at is that restrictions on abortion? Sure. Yeah, I'm willing to listen. Um, like completely banning abortion? No, no, I'm not there. And that's, I think a lot of people who watch politics obsessively have the mistaken impression that most Americans are very, very ideological. And they're not. Even quite conservative and quite liberal Americans are mostly not especially ideological. They view themselves as being pra pragmatic, even if the other side does not. Um, and I think that politicians would be really well served to approach voters that way. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Voting is how we get to express the popular or popular opinion by uh, choosing who we want to be our elected representatives. Now, that message can be partisan, which is just like some years are Democrat years, some years are, are Republican years. Um, and, you know, this, this year, people in one area like one party more than the other. But there can be a lot of other messages that voters send in this, in particular, based on how people are running uh, for office. And so... Um, what are going to be some of the ways, regardless of how this, this election goes, that the winning candidates are going to interpret the public will? That's actually a really interesting question for this particular election cycle. On the Democratic side, it's pretty clear in, in Michigan, uh, I'll stick with that example mm -hmm. for right now, that they're going to interpret the, that as a mandate to protect abortion rights. Because if Democrats win um, a sizable number of elections in Michigan, especially important ones, that will be why they won, right? Is that they articulated a position on the abortion question that resonated with a majority of voters and got them across the finish line. It's a little bit more of an open question with Republicans, um, which we alluded to earlier. Republicans have a lot of issues that they can run on that the voters seem to trust them on. And so I think that you're going to see a fair amount of variation in how candidates interpret that based on the campaigns that they ran. Right. If you ran for office um, to crack down on crime and make communities safe, 
Well, okay, that's that's probably what you're going to pursue when you get into office, because that was the theme of your campaign. You know, if you ran um, on an explicitly, you know, anti-abortion position and the voters rewarded you for that, then that that's probably how you're going to try to govern in general. So I think that Republicans have um, they have more cats to herd um, when this process is all over because they have more issues to work with right now. Mm hmm. Uh, although that's something that I've noticed about, uh, I agree with you that, uh, when you look on Republicans, they're running on all sorts of stuff, but just when I'm looking at some of the things, um, the one consistent message is that, uh, for Republicans, and this is a rare thing is that, uh, they think that school choice is important, that uh, it's important for parents to be able to choose their schools. And sometimes taxpayer money should follow their decisions. And I don't remember that being such a widespread phenomenon among Republicans. There's always been some diversity about, about things. Um, is that something that they would, should interpret as, as something that uh, their voters would want? Or, or what? Why, is, why has there been convergence on that issue? You know, I don't know on the interpretation question. I think that we need more data. Right. Um, and I think part of the reason for that, part of the momentum behind school choice has been what happened during the sort of height of the pandemic. Right. Um, it's very clear that parents, Republicans and Democrats, were pretty dissatisfied with how the school closure issue was handled. And the reaction of some parents was to take their kids out of public school and put them in private schools that were open to the extent that they could afford that or they had options for getting there. Whether that's durable for the long term is a really important question. Um, and, you know, and I think it's an important question for Republicans in terms of how they interpret, you know, wins that they get and, and how they govern. But I think it's a really important question going forward for public school advocates, too. Right. Like how how much damage did this do? Um, and I don't think that we actually know that yet. I mean, there's been some some surveys that have been done that sort of test the water with public opinion. But um, Republicans who win office campaigning on that issue, um, they're going to have a chance to implement. That'll be very interesting to see what sort of feedback they get from the public. So next year and the year after and, you know, all the way for, uh, for the next four years, uh, it's a good Michigan election kind of cycle. There's going to be a lot of issues that come up that we're not talking about in this campaign right now. How do lawmakers then figure out like how they're going to stand, given that they're not on the record, the voters haven't expressed an opinion? Like, how do you, they navigate that terrain? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that is idiosyncratic, right? And part of the it's part of the reason why I encourage people to get involved in politics way in advance of an election, right? is that you want to be able to engage these folks. If there's an issue you're concerned about and candidates are not talking about it on the campaign trail, ask them, send them an email, show up at one of their events, right? Send them a letter um, and, and put them on the record about it. Um, far better than buying a pig and a poke, right? Um, and I do think that the voters in general do a bad job of doing that sort of thing in advance. Um, because if there's not anything on the record, then yeah, we're just sort of relying on that elected official and whatever their ethical, moral, ideological compass is to interpret those events and make good decisions. And that's fine if you just want to leave that in the hands of elected leaders. But, um, you know, the, the data out there seems to indicate that voters in general are dissatisfied with their elected leaders. Um, and that might call for voters doing a little bit more work. Adrian, thank you for helping us understand how we can help shift the Overton window. Thanks a lot for having me.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.